Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be hearing from the innovative drummer who's played with everyone from Michael Jackson to Elton John and Madonna, George Michael. It, the list just goes on and on. Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. This is a truly exciting episode for us uh, at the Resource Center here at NAM. The interview with uh, Sugarfoot Moffat. Man, I'll tell you, the very, I, I remember exactly. I was in Hall A. It was 1998, and this small uh, group of people are walking right towards me, and right in the middle was Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat with a big smile on his face, sticks in his hands on his way to Hall D where all the drums were. And I stopped him and just said, hey, this is awesome. I just want to shake your hand, say hi. And I'll tell you, it was, a, it was really magical. I know that sounds sort of silly, but uh, knowing who he is and who he has worked with and how he has produced the sounds that he has produced and the innovations as far as, far as his style go is just overwhelming to me. Um, I remember the very first time I ever heard him play was on Don't Stop the Music with Yarborough and Peoples. And that record was so creative and interesting. And it's sort of hard to put into words now because we've all heard it a million times. But the first time you hear that in the late 70s, when there was nothing else like it was truly amazing. And, um, and then everything he's done since then. So uh, it was just really an honor to meet him. And as we'll talk about a little bit throughout the podcast, he's become a real good friend of us, of ours and, and NAM and the industry. Um, so it's really a, a privilege for us to share his story and hopefully enlighten a few people on some facts that maybe you never knew about him. I think there's some very interesting hidden gems in his past as far as how his style has developed and some of the people that he's worked with. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be along for this interview with Dan working the camera, and he's Jonathan's got to be one of the coolest dudes that I've ever met, um, and one of the greatest drummers I've ever met, too. I would probably say that he has the best pocket of any drummer I've ever heard. Just the rhythm in his brain is just perfect. He's like a human metronome. It's it's really crazy. And if, if you haven't heard him play, I, I highly recommend just checking out even videos of him playing with no band just to hear how smooth and perfect his rhythm is. Um, and he's super innovative when it comes to kit setups. He's got quite the interesting cymbal setup, and we'll talk a lot more about that uh, later on in this podcast. Um, such a cool dude, and I'm, I'm just really happy I got to be involved with this interview. 
And uh, I won't continue to gush about how great he is since Dan and Mike kind of already took care of that in the beginning here. Uh, So I'm just going to cut it right to the beginning of uh, his interview where he just talks about how he got into music and how he built his drum kit. So here is Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate being with you. It's such a pleasure. I'm glad you uh, gave me the opportunity to do this interview and share my life and story with the the people around the world and at NAMM. Thank you. One of the things I'd love to talk about is your passion for music and how you saw that develop. Did you have a lot of music in your home growing up? Well, my father played cornet, um, my mother told me, uh, before they got married. And he wasn't really, really good, but he was into music and could play a little bit. So, But uh, it was one day at the post office where he worked um, as supervisor, a friend of his, um, told him about his sons were into music to keep him out of trouble. So he thought it was a great idea for me and my two other sibling brothers, which were older than I was, to get into music to keep us our minds on something creative instead of being out there in the streets. So the back there was the rough 60s and late 50s and 60s, so out in South in New Orleans. So um, he came home and asked us if we want to play music. And we, we said, love to. We knew music, but we didn't know much about it. But, you know, So he asked each one of us what we wanted to play. Of course, my older brother, oldest brother, Oren, he was first, and uh, he got to cho- choose. He said, "I want to play bass guitar," and my dad said, "Okay, great, great." And he said, "But well, I want you to play. I want you to play saxophone too." So he learned both. And then my second brother came up and he said, "Well, what do you want to play, Adrian?" And my brother said, "I want to play guitar." And then I said, conveniently, "Man, oh, man I want to play guitar." They took the guitar. Man, I want to play guitar. No, not so. And he, I said, "I'm still say guitar." My father said, "Well, Jonathan, what do you want to play?" I said, "I want to play guitar." And he said, "No, no, we can't have all guitars in the family. You got to do something else, something different." And the only other thing I knew was drums. And I said, "All right, I'll play drums." And I got stuck with drums. <laughs> <laughs> and my first lessons with a private teacher on snare drum uh, turned out to be really mind-opening and changing and, and learning coordination of the sticks and the rhythms and the rudiments. And I started liking it, finding something fascinating about challenging my brain and my mind about controlling my limbs and, and uh, working out these patterns and doing them, being successful at achieving them. And it started fascinating me. So I got more and more into it to see how good I can do or well I can to please my father at first, but then became to self-gratification to please me mm-hmm. and see how good I can get at this. And it started on a snitter at six years old. Wow, that's really you know? cool. You know, one of the things that NAM is always advocating for is music education. And since you had a teacher that helped you a little bit, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience, his, how that mm-hmm. was important to you. His name was Mylon Jones, and we used to go to his house on every, every other Saturday night. And all three of us, and, and he, he knew everything. He taught for a school band, and he taught each one of us our respective instruments. So, um, and they would let me go first because I was a little, littlest, and I get sleepy. And by the time he used, in the beginning, they used to let me go last, and I would be so sleepy, falling asleep on the sofa, I couldn't do my lesson. So they let me go first, and then my other brothers afterwards. So that was on the Saturdays, every other Saturday, and to make sure we did. My dad was smart to make sure we did really good at the lessons, paid attention, and accomplished what was necessary because uh, he was paying this guy money. There was a snowball stand right across, right on the corner from there that made incredible snowballs. We love snowballs down there. So our reward for doing good at that lesson is that if the teacher said you did good, you get a snowball. We loved it. So we was always attentive and doing out uh, what he was trying to teach us. And um, I don't remember ever not getting a snowball because we wanted those snowballs, so we paid attention. <laughs> so that was how I started. But it was only one marching snare drum I had uh, at the time. 
And uh, then every uh, birthday after that, I get another piece of the set. Next birthday, my seventh birthday, I got a bass drum and a cymbal. And uh, I love the bass drum with that silver stripe, dark blue. And then uh, next birthday, and eighth birthday, I got two um, blue glitter sparkle drum toms. Norma, I think was the company, Norma. And um, so then, uh, uh, nice first, I got the floor time, and I got two symbols with that, those two times. Then I got another symbol in the floor time on the ninth birthday. Mm. By that time, at nine years old, I had a whole set. <laughs> and uh, each year, I had a whole year to develop incorporating another, uh, uh, the rest of the kids, you know. So I think it was uh, when I got the bass drum, I got a hi-hat, too, so I could play everything. And then I got the times and then full time and I had a whole kit at nine and start playing um, block parties, talent shows and, and dances and stuff like that. And um, then it was at 10 years old. Our band was my brother's band and, and my in another neighborhood family had all the kids play music. We joined forces and called ourselves the Cavaliers. And then at 10 years old, we started doing nightclubs. Cause we were that good. So I started making money in music at 10 years old. And I've been making money in music since then. It's been my love and passion. And it was at one of those talent shows when I was nine years old at San Augustine High School, a very popular high school down there, uh, very acclaimed. Uh, my brother was in a band, but um, he had switched shoes, clarinet and sax. But anyway, he's in marching band. It's a marching 100 at the time. But we did a, a talent show there, and you know, I remember setting up my little kid. And uh, it was all mismatched drums. All the companies' names were all mismatched, different names. In fact, the full time didn't even want to put the name on it. It was like, <laughs> I didn't put no name. It was like, no name. So I uh, was setting up our drums on stage, and the kids in the auditorium was cheering and screaming. We hadn't even started playing yet. And I, I heard all the screaming from Cavaliers. I was calling different names. And, and I was putting my symbol on. I could picture myself right now, this very scene, and put my symbols on and screwing the thing. And I looked around and said, you know, the screaming for us, we haven't even hit a note yet. I'll be. And I said, I like this feeling, this gratification feeling. I want to feel this the rest of my life. And then I decided, this is what I, don't want, I want to do the rest of my life. I want to play drums. I want to be a musician. I like getting this feeling. People care about us and, and they receive us and they, um, they like what we do. And uh, they devote their devotion to us, you know. And something about that makes you feel worth something. And I, I value that a lot. And it motivated me to carry on for us throughout my life. And and say, this is my main, you know, this is what I want to do all my life, my main thing. My father, of course, tried to say, well, you got to get the education, you got to get another job, that'll be your side passion, you know, something for a hobby. And I was like, no, I want to do this in my life. You know, I didn't dare tell him that because <laughs> he would say, what are you talking about? You're going to do what I say. But anyway, I said, my mind, I'm going to do this all my life. And I've been doing this all my life. And I just turned 65, November 17th. And um, I've been doing it for 40 years professionally. And um, what, what would that be? Uh, 59 years playing since I got my first marching wow. snare drum. And I'm still feeling it. Like, I still feel it as strong as, as, or more so, as the little boy who had two sticks and something to whack on and, and try to make some rhythm out of it. I still see, feel that newness of passion for drumming and for music. Love for music is, is creativity it's through God, you know, spirituality. Mm -hmm. That's what Amazing. I love about it, spirituality. I'm sort of curious, what motivated your dad to uh, to steer you guys into music? Did he play? Yeah, he played cornet. My mother told me he played cornet. He said he could play okay, but he wasn't great. And so it wasn't really like a big musical family, except for the fact she told me later on, she had a great-grandfather who, down south in Louisiana, she was from New Orleans and Louisiana, but he was very popular on, on violin. Huh. 
and he would be hired by all the big hierarchies in Louisiana and different places to go play at shows at their people homes and that's where I, we think that the talent came from because mm. she didn't she just had a great voice but she never was a singer my mother used to sing in the kitchen cooking food or washing dishes and had a really wonderful voice great vibrata and she was too scared to get on stage oh no I'll never get on stage I don't want people to she said I'll let you guys hit me but I don't oh, no she's too nervous you know so but she had a wonderful voice my sister inherited that voice mm. but she never did it for real she was scared of the stage and <laughs> and my other brothers wound up being uh getting to other professionals like my fat my father wanted them you know i'm returning to a sergeant at police force and the other one was a medical pathologist at the da hospital and um but i i stuck with it now they did it like hobbies and stuff but i stuck with it for the real thing i wanted the real reward because i got the real gratification every time i stepped on stage and i love that feeling like the very first time i told you i had that feeling and i recognized that this is my calling so what do you see as some of your big breaks what were some of the the milestones that led to the beginning of your career I would say playing in a nightclub. It was a nightclub called the Desert Sands in New Orleans on Claiborne Avenue. And I was this little boy, 10 years old, small for my age. In fact, the marching band at school wouldn't let me march. I wanted to march like the guys and looking cool. But they say it was too small. They tried it and the drum would just roll all over me. The strap was just rolling. I'm trying to chase the drum. And the, the principal took that drum and said, no, this is not for you. So they put me in concert band. And, but I, I, you know, I, um, I think that gratification moment I told you about, and then the first time I was in the club and I played and I saw the crowd magnified what I felt at first, and that was a milestone, and that, that cemented that I chose the right thing to do, because I had that gratification in greater magnitude, because there's smaller clubs and people right up on you as opposed to a big wide auditorium. That time, and then um, the band members would encourage me because I was this little guy, could play like an adult, you know, like Michael. My, Michael and I, uh, our lives parallel. I was playing beyond my years um, as, a, as a kid, talent-wise, and everybody recognized it and saw it, and they would encourage me even more. And they said, you're gonna be a star one day, you need to go to Hollywood. You know, we could see that you're different, something about you. And um, I used to listen to that voice, and I wanted, I aspired to be better, so I practiced every day, six to eight hours a day, and uh, like really, really, like I knew it was gonna be my job, so. I saw the importance of that, and I give that as a, a, a direction and encouragement to everybody who wants to be successful in music. You got to become one with your instrument. You got to know it like you know your spirit and your soul because it's your translator. So you got to put in the time and have a relationship with your instrument, you know, a one-on-one -on -one relationship before you have a relationship with other musicians and their instruments and have a conversation, uh, the way I put it like that, by playing with other people. You got to play by yourself and discover you and discover your vocabulary, and develop your vocabulary, an encyclopedia of, of uh, diction, so to speak. And um, then you start using that diction to communicate with other musicians who develop their vocabulary, their encyclopedia of diction. And you come together, you make music, and make songs. Um, so, you know, working with the band, and other band members, it was like a sheer delight, because I started to feel what they was doing, and then compliment them, and it became a snowball of chemistry. And that's another gratifying thing I, I learned about it. And each band that I joined had different musicians, of course, and it was a different experience because everybody had different feelings. So it was another whole crowd of people. I got to relate to their souls and spirits and, and relate them to mine. Because like I say, it's all, it's all a spirituality. Um, music is spirituality, so. You guys, this is so awesome. I really love listening to this interview. I was there and I can still feel a smile on my face as we were listening to his amazing stories. 
Uh, you guys are listening to the Music History Project and our podcast dedicated to the NAM oral history interview with Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffitt. And uh, I just really would like to pause here for a second and give a shout out to our good friend Leo Nocentelli from The Meters, who we have known for many years and who, in fact, recently uh, received the NAM Believe in Music Award 2020 for all of his help uh, in the industry. He also helped us arrange this interview with Jonathan. So a shout out to Leo. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. And if you'd like to check out Leo's interview, which we have online, as well as Jonathan's full interview, uh, you can head over to namnamm.org slash library, and we have the full collection there. So let's jump back into this episode with Sugarfoot. He's going to be talking about next his big break with the Jacksons. And then I uh, decided in um, 79, Early some night to drive to Los Angeles and give it a shot. Um, and um, to a friend of mine helping me come out here. And Jermaine Jackson had heard me on uh, one of our band's tapes that he was in with me and uh, sent for me, so to speak. So came out and a meeting with him never really happened. A month and a half later, I ran into a music director for the Jacksons, who was a friend of mine from New Orleans, who used to always come to New Orleans when they played in town in the Municipal Auditorium and come visit my mother's house which was a block from his mother's house. We were in rival bands in New Orleans, but we always, you know, were friends. We wasn't competition where we hate each other. We were very close friends. His name was James McField. Became the Jackson music director. He said, Foot, if you ever, they call me Sugarfoot, so he called me Foot. If you ever come out to Los Angeles, look me up. Here's my address, my phone number. And uh, Jackson brothers need to hear you and other people need to hear you. And then I took him up on his word as well and came out. A month and a half later, after the field meeting with Jermaine, which wound up happening way later in the career, I ran into uh, James and on a payphone in, in L.A., and he just so happened to tell me that they, uh, they didn't have the new, a drummer now. They were looking for drummers, and I got to audition with the Jacksons, and they liked me. And uh, he extended, actually, a day, because the, the end of the audition period was that day I met him. He extended to give me a chance, and I wound up being the drummer. Mm. So that was, a, that was a big highlight spotlight on my opportunity for the world to see me and hear me with a major recording artist, who I was a fan of as well. Everybody was a fan of the Jacksons, you know? My, uh, the Jackson 5, I should say. Right. And they just turned to the Jacksons. That's amazing. That's really cool. Was, uh, did you, um, when did you do... Uh, don't stop the music. Was that about that same time? <laughs> yeah, that was not short, shortly after that, not so long after that, uh, doing the first tour with the Jacksons, which I joined the Jacksons and audition was February 21st of 1979. I had three days to learn my first professional show and tour. Three, only three days of no professional work <laughs> at all. So I had to cram it in and focus, concentrate, and got it. Did my first show in Cleveland with Michael and their brothers, and he, he called me to his room, and he complimented me. He said, nobody played for me like that. They said, well, how did you know I was going to make this move, and you had an accent? And I said, I don't know. I could feel it. And he said, when I spun around and I stopped on the dime, how did you know when I was going to stop? I said, I don't know. I was watching you close, and I could feel it. And I said, man, maybe I messed up. I shouldn't have did that. I was like thinking, oh, I'm about to get fired and sent home, flying home. And then he said, well, by that time when I did this other move and, and then you hit the symbol and snare at the same time, right on point. How did you know I was going to do that? I said, I, I keep my eye on you and I thought it was great and it would give you good accent sound effects to what you're doing. He said, hmm, he got quiet. I said, uh-oh, here's my ticket home. I'm in trouble. I said, I did all of this stuff trying to be too creative. And he said, 
Well, keep doing it. Keep doing it. I love it. I love it. Nobody's done that for me. It's like I said, I said, wow, okay, this is cool. <laughs> so the, the walk back to my room was much shorter than the walk to his room when, you know, you dread it like, oh, my God, we're in trouble. And it seemed like the hallway stretches out. <laughs> and you finally get there, you're scared to knock, you go, doo, doo, doo. <laughs> That's what I did. And uh, so anyway, that was a great moment when he gave me my first professional com compliment from Michael Jackson. And um, he said, you're our drummer, you're our drummer. Nobody has ever done that for me. And, and, and new, you could, it's like you could feel me, you could read my mind. And I never had that before. So that made me feel like 10 billion bucks. So, you know, so anyways, that was a great moment for me. Um, and then from there on with the Jacksons, that first tour in 79 in the spring, I went to do the second tour in the fall, which was the Destiny album on both of those tours we were supporting. But Michael had dropped off the wall. So the second tour started uh, September 1st. Of all places in my hometown, New Orleans, I got to make my debut uh, live performance professionally in New Orleans. And it's all over the Internet, you know. Um, and that was called the Destiny Off the Wall Tour. And um, from there, other people would see me with the brothers and call me. And when I'm getting calls, Lana Ritchie and Patty Austin, and then Cameo in 82. My first tour of 38 years with Cameo. Mm. And then, um, you know, and 82, then back with the brothers. And no, but back with 82 was Cameo, then 83 was Cameo. Then the brothers with the victory tour. Then uh, Madonna was in the audience there, saw me, and told her manager, that's my drummer. And so in 85, I joined her for the Virgin Tour, first tour ever. And I wound up after that, right after that, doing the True Blue album, entire album. And then after that, I went to Jermaine Jackson. Mm. And then I went after that back to Madonna for the Who's That Girl tour in 87. Then I got a call from, I never dreamt of getting a call from Elton John. They call him Sir Elton John. And he said, I mean, he's following your career, all your career. He loves you, your work. He wants you to work for him. Elton John calls. I was shocked and like pleasantly shocked. So I wound up working with him in 88 and 89. Mm -hmm. Then after that, 89 with Elton, but I had a call back for the Blind Ambition Tour. And in the meantime, I had recorded the Like a Prayer album with her. And um, so I, I did the Two's That Girl album with her. Uh, uh, I did True Blue, and, and I did uh, also the Dick Tracy's album. And then after Madonna in 1990, I get a call from somebody who was backstage at the Elton concert, uh, George Michael in 91. I wound up doing a tour with him. Then Janet in 93, 94, those two years. Then Michael called me for his uh, back for his solo tour in, in 96, 97, which case when I was with Michael on Who's That Girl tour, uh, not Michael, with Madonna on Who's That Girl tour, Michael, had, I was scheduled to be Michael's music director on Bad Tour, but he pushed it back, so Madonna caught me. So I finally got to work with Michael solo in 96, 97. Then I did his um, 2001 30th anniversary special, and then I was uh, scheduled to do and we did the rehearsals for This Is It, you know, which turned into that major motion picture film in 2009 with him. Got back. And all in between those, I'd go back to Cameo. So all in third, inserted between all of them shows, back to Cameo, some funk music. They're a prolific band. I love them. <clears throat> Miss them now. And um, so back to them. And then I did this after that. I went to Cirque du Soleil, Michael Jackson Estate, um, Immortal World Tour. Mm. And then back to Cameo. <laughs> so uh, I did my last shows of Cameo last year, October. Wow. Yeah, so. That's amazing. Yeah, and, you know, very blessed. Mm. Uh, beyond the little boy's dream of what was possible. You know, so I'm, I'm really thankful and grateful for the blessings of, that I've been able to experience life all around the world. Such a great story to hear him talking about uh, 
help. I mean, God, he was so lucky. Just all of his breaks that he got in the beginning there with uh, with the Jacksons, and then just going back and forth touring with uh, with Michael, and then Madonna and Elton, and then back to Madonna, and then back to Michael. <laughs> I mean. Not a lot of room to complain, I feel like, for most musicians right there. Uh, such an interesting story. And, and like Dan mentioned earlier, you know, when I was when I was listening to his interview before, I couldn't help just starting to smile during some of his stories because you can just really tell that he he loves what he does. And it's a passion and a love uh, that is just part of his life. And so it was been such a joy to listen to him talk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to also say that luck had something to do with it, but you know how hard he worked. You know, it's really clear on on how uh, powerful he was when he needed to be powerful and how light and elegant he needed to be. He would be that too. Uh, just an amazing ability to be exactly the drummer each of those artists that you just mentioned needed him to be and at the right time. You know, I think it's uh, really, um, I've never been a touring musician like this at these, you know, high stakes, my goodness. But uh, one can only imagine that the talent it takes to be that precise to a lot of different styles of music and artists has got to be uh, very difficult. So, um, yeah, I've always been amazed by artists like Sugarfoot who can do that with a number of different styles. You know, it's interesting, coming up, he's going to be talking about um, Warlines for Music. Uh, Warlines was really the, the go-to store, music store in um, New Orleans actually starting in the 1850s. Interestingly enough, in 2003, when they were closing uh, for the final time uh, going out of business, I was there and did some interviews, and they told me that the store had only closed for five days in its history. Uh, One of them was during the Civil War, when the troops were getting a little too close. That tells you how historic that store is. (laughs) So he'll be talking a little bit about Warlines. And then after that, you guys, we get the treat of hearing where the nickname Sugarfoot came from. So here comes more of Sugarfoot Moffat on the Music History Project. I wonder if we could back up just a little bit. I'm kind of curious, when you were growing up in New Orleans, were there music stores, musical instrument stores that you went to? Yes, yes, there was. My first one, when my dad bought my first drums for Piece by Piece, was uh, that was, um, what's the name of that store? Warlines, Warlines Music. They had a chain of them around New Orleans. And then the big guitar center came in. I used to go to that one there, located there. And there was mainly those two competing. A lot of little mom-pop stores there, but mostly those. If you wanted to get some real serious equipment, those are the two stores. And Warlines was a family-run business. And my father bought my first drums and stuff there, pieces by piece, like I said. And, um, yeah, I used to frequent those stores and just look around and say, wow, what these drums for one day, beautiful drums. And for my uh, graduation from high school in 72, my father bought me a Roger set, uh, a brand new Roger set, the whole kit this time, not piece by piece, (laughs) not piecemeal. (laughs) So I cherished those drums, and those are the drums I did Don't Stop the Music on. Hmm. Yeah. No kidding. How did you get the nickname? Um, from my early years, uh, I, I wanted to play bass, remember? I said I want to play guitar, bass guitar, and I couldn't do that. So what happened was it became a tendency 
because I like the warm feeling of the bass, tendency to listen to the records, the Motown records and stuff, and learn the drum parts, but I'm influenced by the bass lines, you know, and James Jameson Sr. was prolific at bass line, a lot of movement in his rhythm, and very rhythmic and dynamic, and all the James Brown songs. And of course, I'm a drummer, everybody's drummer has to be a James Brown fan and his drummer's fan. So I learned those things. And, and like subliminally listening to the drum parts, I hear the bass parts. I started trying to lock in with the bass lines and start adding figures on the bass drum more than the drummer was doing on the record. So, so really to do that, you have to get more flu, uh, fluent uh, footwork and get adapt to that. And you got to have a stamina and endurance and tolerance to, for the stresses of that. So I wound up merging the two subconsciously. And then my foot became fast, like they said. Uh, and, and I used to do a lot of figures that drummers wouldn't even think to do. And I did develop a, a speed in my foot and accuracy and dynamics in my footwork. And then uh, I was a band, the second band, because uh, to go back, my first band, the Cavaliers, my brother's band, they wanted to play a more popular nightclub in New Orleans, but they would not break the rule and allow an 11-year-old to go in there. So my brothers fired me, <laughs> <laughs> and so they got the other older drummer. And so this other band heard about, heard me before, and they were called The Spectrum, and I did an audition for them. They liked me, and that's where I got the name Sugarfoot. Yeah. Yeah, I played a couple of songs when they said, oh, we want you, you're our drummer. And I was bitter from being fired from my brother's band. I said, I don't want to join your band. I like your band, but I don't want to join it because uh, I got fired from my brother's band. So he said, well, just play with us for some gigs so we find somebody who's being slick, you know. He said, but if you're going to play with us, everybody in the band has nickname. We got to find you a cool nickname and stuff like that. And so I'm thinking, all right, all right. This is going to be cool. Ace, a Duke, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, some kind of powerful name. You know, uh, I'm thinking, hey, you know, it's going to be one of them cool names. And then he said, I know what we're going to call you. You got that fast, sweet foot. I'm going to call you Sugarfoot. I say, Sugarfoot? No, I don't want that name. That's, that's Cordy. I don't want that. And they start laughing, laughing. And he said, no, you're Sugarfoot. <laughs> every gig we play, I'm announce you as Sugarfoot. And nobody's going to know your real name. And I was like, oh, man, the little boy thinking, oh, man, this is messed up. <laughs> so, and I, so the shows of gigs was happening. He said, Sugarfoot on drum. And they give me solos two or three times a night. And I would try my head and do the solo. Like, I want to answer that. People start cheering. And uh, it wound up through the years. Going from one band to another, sticking and going, you know, throughout New Orleans. And everywhere I go, people say, Sugarfoot, they recognize me from the club. And I turn my head like I'm looking at the store and I'm not, I didn't hear him and stuff. And, <laughs> and I realized at some point, you know, I got to start answering because people who know me as that, they don't even know who Jonathan Moffat is. So I wound up acknowledge, started acknowledging it. I still don't like it. I heard the Thanos, you know, <laughs> <laughs> something powerful, you know, <laughs> Thor. Well, I can't get Thor, man. Uh, man, so, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so anyway, I, I answered to it, and people called it, and they called me that, and it's become my moniker, so I'm sugar for the guess, you know. <laughs> I'll it. call you Jonathan, how's that? Okay, that's good, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I like that, I like that. <laughs> so uh, another thing about your career in the early days that's kind of striking to me is the uh, the development of the electronic drums during that same time. And you, you know, a lot of people kind of shied away from it. What was your approach? Well, my thought process was, yeah, I just heard drummers in our work because in the studio, we started to stop getting calls a lot. So it was hurting us a lot. And uh, the 9000s were very popular and the Rollins and all these drum companies coming out as the uh, SP12s. And, and I wound up, you know what? I can't fight against technology if it's going to grow like that and it's going to shun me a drummer. Now, 
I got to join it, embrace it, and join it. So I wound up uh, not knowing anything what I'm doing. I bought an SP12. I bought uh, three Lin 9000s that they had. And they were very expensive, like five grand each, you know. Um, and then I learned, and all these buttons on the 9000, I was like, man, I'm scared. This thing is intimidated. But a very good friend of mine calmed me down. His name is Chucky Booker. He's a recording artist as well as the music director for Lionel Richie. And he's with music director for Tina uh, Turner. But back then it was in the 80s, so he he, he had the 9000s, and he said, no, foot, it's, it's easy, I'm coming to your house and show you. Then he showed me, and then I videotaped it, but when he showed me, I started understanding. But when you, it's knowledge and knowing that uh, dissipates all the fear and apprehension. So once he taught it to me and showed me, you know, it took me a few times to get it, but I saw all the buttons and it wasn't intimidating anymore. But at the beginning, that drum technology, electronic drum machines were intimidating, intimidating me because I wasn't oriented to it. Then I embraced it, and a lot of my music I have now, I'm playing live drums and uh, I keep the drum tracks and I play on top of them, and or you know I would develop the drum tracks on the drum machine and then, then uh, transfer it to live, you know. Uh, and some songs I leave the tracks as the drums because certain songs is appropriate. That drum feel and the drum sound is great for certain songs, you know, like all great songwriters now today mm. uh, use, you know, and know. So well, I embraced I, it. Yeah, you know. I, Growing up, I think you were the first one I heard who did both. Yeah. And when you hear the warmth of the acoustic drums, I had more of an appreciation for the actual instrument, knowing that the alternative was electronics, and it, like you say, it has its place. Yeah. But to me, it really brought out the warmth and sort of the the connection that you can have with the acoustic. It's yeah. kind of interesting. Yes, it's very interesting because on Michael's tours, a lot of people don't know, um, one of the challenges of Michael's music and touring with him is that the drummer has to play to and on top of the drum tracks. And you know, that can be a serious nightmare. If you off just the slightest fraction, you hear flams on the kick and the snare. So um, one of my other blessings is the depth of concentration and focus. And it became natural to me. I wasn't intimidated by the click track, even from the beginning. I was, I embraced it. Most drum, a lot of drums say, oh, don't, don't, don't use this click track, you know? No, I embrace it. I want to use the click track. Therefore, I know every night I'm consistently and on point, you know, where I'm supposed to be tempo, because you're all human beings, every drummer in the world, every musician in the world, and our energies fluctuate from day to day. You know, um, it's going to be, if you don't use click track, it's going to be fast, a little bit faster one day and a little bit slower another day. So I prefer to play to click track because that way you got that guy, that thread that sews the, piece, the, the two pieces of garment together, uh, and which is my playing, all the you know, parts of my playing together, keeps me on track and on point. And twice as this happened with two major artists, I won't say their names, even though I like to get them back. They kind of embarrass me. They say, you, you, you're off track. You're too fast. And the, and, and the music are saying, no, no, he's right on point. I got the click track in my mind. I say, he's right with it. So in those kind of instances, it saved you. Mm-hmm. And um, to know that the, the musical director can, can tell that artist, no, it's your energy is different tonight, you know, because they don't have the click track in their ears. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I like it. I embrace it because of that. It keeps everything consistent every show because you want a consistent show every every venue. So um, I, I love technology and I'm trying to embrace some more of it. You know, the recording stuff, I'm just starting to try to get into how to operate the Pro Tools or the Logic. Uh, all of that stuff is a bit in, like the drum machine was in the beginning intimidating for me. But I'm, uh, I have a good teacher. My fiance Myra, she's really good at that stuff. And mm. she's going to be teaching me and um, other friends of mine as well. And uh, get me oriented to how to um, know what's happening to my music when it's recorded, you know. 
So I got some work to go left in my life and career. That's awesome. You know, one of the areas of growth in the NAM family is live sound. And boy, I can't think of anybody who's had more experience with touring and live sound than you. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've seen develop in your career as far as live sound and, and any stories or thoughts you have about working with like front of house or any of those kind of um, thoughts. Anything come to mind? Well, you know, as, uh, on the tours that I've done, worked on, I've worked with the best, some of the best of the best as far as front of house sound and the systems, incredible system they put together, you know, from Show Show uh, Shoko and uh, with Claire Brothers and, you know, all the uh, Midas systems, and which was one of my favorite systems, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, this unbelievable inspiration and sound you get from them. Uh, but anyway, um, the magnitude of, of volume that you can get into an arena with the clarity that you can get nowadays as opposed to in the 80s when I first started touring, which was mostly impressed by the volume of sound. Hmm. Now they worked it out that we can get more crystal digital sound and clean sound, precise sound. And the, the, you need that presence of volume to uh, make people feel it, hit them. You know, when, when you get them subs going and they start hitting people, like hit the kick drum or, you know, bass, low sub bass start going and it rumbles their bones inside. <laughs> if you clatter it inside, I love that experience, you know. Um, and knowing that that translates there because on stage, that's what I love to feel. Uh, most people can't take the volume that I, I tolerate on stage. I've tried it with a few people that thought, oh, I can handle this. They sat on my seat and the first iota of sound, they jumped up and ran instinctively without saying, I got to run. Their bodies protected us, and they jump in this. Oh my God! How'd you take that volume? Elton was the same way, but it's more than that. I want it. Then I want it loud. There's a certain threshold in me, and like Elton, the same. I'm sure that it can be very, very loud, but it doesn't move my soul and my spirit. But you pass that threshold switch, and then I feel it more, and I get more robust, and I'm hitting much, much harder. I'm hitting with more passion and emotion. It brings out the emotion in me. It's got to have it a certain. Um, Volume, but not so much for volume's sake. It's for the spirituality that it, it triggers in me. It makes me become way more creative. And the people, if I'm more creative on stage, the people will feel that difference in the audience. Mm. So I do listen very loud. And now we have systems. I'm with Empire Ears and Brilliant Systems. And it can put out the sound and volume that can tolerate. I've blown up so many ear companies' ears. Uh, <laughs> on Cirque Tour, I blew out four <laughs> pairs of $1,500 ears. And, uh, and then they took my own personal ones and I blew them out too. <laughs> my fifth bypass, uh, cause I couldn't handle the, I won't say the company, but couldn't handle the volume, you know, uh, but, uh, my empires, I love it because, um, I put them to the test, put it like that. Um, but they can, they can create that, I, that I can handle and then they, they got something good. But anyway, I love that to feel it on stage, you know, um, uh, is important. And I, like I said, all the systems, there's a lot of great systems out there, the NAMM show and on these, these tours. But um, there's a few of them that stand apart, and um, and the other ones follow mm-hmm. and, and inherit that technology. Um, but it's always growing, which is good, you know. And um, now I'm, I'm finding that uh, sound companies are bringing less is more. They just make the less more efficient. They're learning how to do that. And instead of bringing all these cabinets, they bring fewer cabinets that are way more efficient than the multitude of trucks and cabinets that they got to carry around uh, on a tour. And I think that's really great, great progress, you know. So, and it's very important, you know, for the people that's going to experience the sound, who paid money, real hard money, uh, or earned money then to see a show, and not only see a show, experience a show. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. They could put, stay at home and put the CD on and hear music and, you know, and stuff. And 
look at a photo of the artist, but they want to experience the, the show. They got to feel it. So our job is to make them feel it and go home and talk about it for the next 10 years, all their friends, what they felt and they experienced at my show. Speaking of shows, what's the highlight for you of uh, Live Aid? That was really significant. That was the first of it, kind of anything like that, you know. And a very good, very good question. A lot of people, not a people, a lot of people ask me that. Of course, it was scary. And they tell you you're gonna be in how many people that was supposed to be watching that thing? A billion people, something like that, crazy <laughs> number. Around one time, watching me on stage, and and uh, it was a great timing to do it with Madonna because she was just coming up, you know. And it was the first tour I did with. We just finished that, and she was just coming to own her own as an artist mm-hmm. and recognized. So. Um, it was a really great, great feeling to be on that stage. You know, we were in Philadelphia. They had the one in London and, uh, the networks were going back and forth. It was really cool, which was awesome. Both sides of the world. You got these top, top gear talents, you know, and, um, and it's really wonderful thing, you know, um, and I think I'm trying to think, who was that? Was that Zeppelin on stage? I was a supplement. I thought I was on stage and they needed a drummer. They asked me, but Steve Ferroni, I think, uh, who, who wound up doing that? No. Uh, Tony Thompson wound up doing it. But they asked me at one point, but I was sort of new in the, in the, around that circle of business. And uh, Tony had more of a name with Chic, you know. And it was it was okay. I sat sat on the side and watched. You know. But uh, one of the big groups uh, needed a drummer, and uh, I was like, man, I missed the opportunity. That would have been great. <laughs> I've done two artists on it, but it's it's one of the the jewels in my crown of my career doing Live Aid, the first one ever, and the first of anything is very very special more than any other one that follow. So the significance is being the first at anything in life. Mm. And then your name will be remembered forever. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about some of your recordings, because there are so many goodies there as far as inspiration for a lot of other people. And I kind of wonder what some of the highlights are for you. Don't Stop the Music be my first song I played on. It was a hit, Y'all and Peoples. Uh, I did that whole album. And I, did the, I did the following album as well. And... Um, which I found out they used the same drone type of music. Sorry, you guys, I got you. I had to sing my beat and wrote a new song. Come on, man. <laughs> and, 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 and it was successful, too. And anyway, my song, that beat was sampled. I found out this was like 10 years ago. There's a shop in Hollywood that licensed these albums, that vinyls out to the industry to, for artists to sample. This guy has a record book, and he has like 5,000 vinyls in his, his shop. And he, he pulled he pulled up the record to my page and said, don't stop the music. Was At that point, 10 years ago from now, sampled over 45 times by 45 different artists. And I, where's my money? I'm still waiting for the check. Hey, you guys. What happened to check, man? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just serious, but I'm kidding. <laughs> that would be nice, right? 45 times different artists, artists sample my beat, just like the James Brown drummers, the most sampled drummers in history of music and drumming. Um, I'm right behind them on the trailer hitch. So do you have a story of how that beat came about? Well, I went in there and heard the song. They had the song program and stuff like that. And, and they wanted my feel because they had heard me play before. And um, that was my first time working for Total Experience Records. And the artists from them, I knew all the guys around Total Experience, the Gap Band, and I knew um, did a lot of the, the DJ Rogers. And, and my bass player friends played on a lot of their records. Mike McKinney and, and uh, Y-Track, there's other bass players in Y-Track. Uh, so they were told about me. And uh, Lonnie Simmons, the owner of Total Experience, called, they called me in. And um, they asked me to do the record. So they played this track. And I had a nice groove, a nice bass line. I said, oh, yeah. So what I did, 
the approach remind me the approach to it remind me of a New Orleans kind of hump vibe, you know. So I said, and I saw I added like a, a New Orleans type beat to it. Just came up with it on the spot, dun, 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 dun. and he liked it, and that's, it made it repet- repetitive because everything repetitive is hypnotic. And that's where music gets you, the audience and the purchases. That's where you get the money. You make something hypnotic and draw them in, and they'll go there and cash with their money. So, okay, I'll buy it. I like, okay, I want this. Uh, uh, so you make it hypnotic and um, with the beat repetitive pattern. And I, and I add dynamics to the foot pattern. That's the, that's the you know, hypnosis. And it worked. They loved it. And they said, just play the same beat all the song long. You know, do much, don't do much feels. We just want that repetitive thing. So that's how it came about. I just put the New Orleans background into it, used that approach, and then stuck with it throughout, you know, to, to create that hypnosis, you know. And it hypnotized people to make it a hit number one hit. So, <laughs> so it worked out, and I did two albums with them. What a great way to start, huh? I mean, yeah. Maybe your first. That was yeah. pretty neat. That was really, really special. Like I said, the first of anything yeah. is the most special things, you know, most most accomplished things. So, and then um, you know, I, I did. I recorded with Madonna, and I oh, recorded yeah. the Jacksons actually before after oh, the yeah. cameo. Uh, them, I did some stuff on the Triumph album, and and I did something with Janet, one song on her record as well, and um, I even sang background on some stuff. And I worked on the True Blue album, did all the drums on that, and and percussion as well. A lot of people didn't know I played percussion and the same background a couple songs, you know. So any uh, particular song recording with Madonna that comes to mind that was special for you? I did the uh, um, "Keep It Together" like a prayer. I'm on like a prayer. Uh, Open your heart. And so that's me. Uh, that was the first one I did. First song I did from Madonna. Right? And then he told me we want to we give me a special f- uh, feel in the beginning to make it dynamic, make something really special. And I thought, sat down and so I tried a few things. I said, No, I know what to do. And I did that one. Dang, 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 dang. And it became history, you know. And people sample that you know, all over the place, you know. They say that's one of the most sampled things, as well as the sound of my drums. They would sample my drums, and my kit. You know, I had the Jamaha kit. I still have it it's in storage now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one. Uh, this sample, all the artists want to sample my kit. You know, that kit, and they use it on songs, which is really me, because the way you hit is your sound, not just the drum kit. You know, the way you your hit is your character and your identity. Mm-hmm. So I'm on a lot of records I don't know about, <laughs> and they use my sounds, kicking snare and hat and stuff. You know? <laughs> How about recording with Michael? Can we talk a little bit about some of the highlights for you? Well, actually, there's a misconception. I've never done the Michael record. People think I'm playing on the records. I just learned it, the pattern when I do a live, like the record, that like my heroes on the record, you know, JR's. I was into JR um, back in New Orleans when he was with Rufus. I was a fan of JR, of course, so I, that carried forth to when he started the did, did, um, uh, Off the Wall record with Michael when I was on the Destiny tour with Michael. Mm. So he was recording that stuff, and so um, I was a big fan of JR, and he put the perfect beats on that, those records that helped make them hit records. You know, his feel, his touch, his sensitivity, his timing, impeccable timing. So he was on two of the albums I had played on, I, I, I admired, Thriller and Off the Wall. Mm-hmm. And then in Dougal on, uh, um, on uh, Billy Jean, Jeff Picard on Beat It. I was a fan of both of them and Jeff Picard from Toto and, you know, a big fan of his, you know. Um, a huge fan. Uh, nobody groups like Jeff. You know, and Dougal, same thing. He's from New Orleans, and and he got that certain swagger drum feel that I have. You know, I um, he was in so many groups that uh, I was big fans of. You know, so 
uh, I got to play their stuff live and recreate it. So I studied them into the hilt and recreated it. But then I added some me. And that's what make the, the character. I put my own swing, bit of swing on it, my own power, because I take the power of rock, which I love rock, the power of rock drumming. I added to R&B and pop. And that's makes it made my own identity and things as well as the sensitivities, the dynamics and the feel and the touch. And like I say, the swing and the attitude, you know, and I created my own formula, you know. So um, uh, but I never recorded with Michael directly, you know, on his, his sessions. Mm. You know, now I did record on uh, Diana Ross's uh, I Want Muscles, which Michael wrote and produced. He brought me in the studio for that. But Quincy has his team, prolific team. And Quincy is the ultimate um, producer and, and director and everything. He's just, he's just an all around ultimate artist as well as, uh, facilitator for a producer and for an artist to have. Um, nobody match him. And he put together this dynamic team. So I get to play, um, I get to play and recreate what he put forth in the sound and the attitude of the, the record that he produced. And it's nothing like it for my spirit when I play Michael's music. You know, nothing like it. Even the Jackson Brothers music, something about it. They got a special touch and thing, sensitivity. So um, I enjoy that a lot, yeah. Such amazing stories that Sugarfoot's telling and an amazing career. It's just, it, I feel like it keeps getting deeper and deeper and this guy has just played with everyone. Um, coming up next, he's going to be talking about a signature move that he developed called the Backlash Whiplash, which is a move that he does... Um, with his symbols, um, and he goes into detail about explaining it, but just to tease it a little bit, it has to do with his love of superheroes and wanting to be, uh, wanting to have superpowers when he was a kid. It's just an amazing story. Um, and then he's going to go into talking more about Michael Jackson, and, and this is some really cool insight on t into how Michael was as a musician and just what it was like to be around him. Um, so here he is, Sugarfoot, in his next segment on the Music History Project. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the stylistic things that you've developed, like the what is that the the backlash whiplash <laughs> backlash whiplash. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I developed that when I was twelve years old. <laughs> I was a kid that loved comic books, and uh, before I was drumming, six years old, I was drawing at four years old on my father's wall, and I catch whippings all the time behind the door. Let's be clever, hide it, draw behind the door, close the door. Uh, you know, we close the door open so you can hide the drawing. He'd find it. I catch a whipping. But anyway, I was drawing before I was drumming. So I would draw all these comic books, Marvel comic books and DC comic books and stuff. So I would read them and get into these superhero characters and that stuff. And I said, man, I want to be a superhero. So around 12 years old, I'm playing my drums. I need to do something special. I'm thinking, and so I know what? I need a superpower like the, like the Marvel characters. I know what I'll do. What if I could put the symbols behind me and right way behind me and I can hit them and crash them, you know? And, and, and I went out, like people think you got eyes behind your head, you know? And I hit them and crash them. So I did that, tried it, and I said, oh, this is cool. I like it. Bam, bam, bam. You know, so, and then one time I was in a pattern playing, practicing. And that's where I said, you discover yourself. And I was playing and I went to hit one of those. And I hit it. I said, no, I don't want to do that. And it was, caught it. I said, wait a minute, that's a cool sound. I said, that's awesome. So I started, I, said, I can make that into something. So I started developing and working with it and doing it and hitting it. And I said, let me do my left arm. And did that. You got developing accurate at both arms, placing them accurate first so I, I can feel where they are. Now, mm -hmm. it's, you know, from 12 years old. And now 
I, of course, I better know where I am. I, you know, I need to see a high dog. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I got acclimated to it, and I could do both arms. I crossed my arm, bam, bam. And so it was like feeling like a superhero. I was 12 years old. You can imagine that feels powerful, like you somebody. So uh, I just missing a cape, you know. <laughs> so and I'm not into cape. So uh, anyway, that's how it developed at 12, being reading the comic books, mm. wanting to really be a superhero because I believed them like they were real-life people. Uh, and um, setting up my idea of what a superpower would be for a drummer hit the symbols where you can't see them and catch them. Then later developed into catching them and then catching them at different timings, you know, quickly, quickly, then let them linger, linger different patterns, you know, you psh, psh, or psh, psh, something like that. And different increments in between, I have a vocabulary of them that I use musically within, within the patterns that I play. And it's become, you know, out there known now that people see me and they wonder how I, how I developed it. Now you know. <laughs> Ta-da! That's a great answer. That's fantastic. <laughs> You know, another thing I was hoping to talk a little bit about is is Michael, and I know you had a close relationship with him, and I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about your take on his musicianship. I mean, did you see him play an instrument? I mean, what what sort of musician was he in your mind? Yeah, and the time that I was Michael all, all the time with Michael, I never seen him play an instrument. They told me Michael James McField, the one who got me the audition, and responsible for me being discovered, um, he told me that Michael was a good drummer. And, but Michael, for some reason, was nervous to play around. He never played. I said, here, Michael, give him the stairs. Oh, no, no. I don't want to play. I don't want to play. And he said, no. And I said, come on. I teased him. I put him closer with the sticks. No, no. And he put his hands up. I don't want to play. I don't want to play. Laughing like a little boy. And then he started running. And I said, come on, Michael. I'm teasing. <laughs> and he wouldn't play in front of me. They tell me you're a good drummer. But every time I designed a custom kit, he said, I want a kit just like this. Can you get me a kit? I said, I'm like thinking, I thought he didn't play. But he liked the, the art. He said, the artistic value, you should be in the Smithsonian Institute. Because, again, mind you, I started as an artist at four. Mm-hmm. And I design all my kits, all the layouts. And I do all the cages and stuff like that on the Victory Tour, which was the first one, on through the Immortal Tours cages, you know. And uh, the History Tour cage, you know, and all, all the, the racks I do. Um, so he loved the design and the concept I had. He always wanted one of my kids, but he would never sit down. I said, come sit by, you feel it. No, 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 I don't want to. It's okay, that's what you do, I sing. And he wouldn't do it, so <laughs> I never got to see him play drum, but they told me he can play. Mm-hmm. Then somebody told me he can play piano, but he never played in front of me. So he was kind of shy from me in that way, in that respect. I guess people say that's because he respected your talent to that degree. It's like intimidating, but you know, I'm, I'm intimidated by what he does. And all. I'm, you know, I'm his, I work with him, and, but I'm a fan as well. You know, everybody I think in music, a fan of Michael's work and his, his uh, intuitive creativity, which is very, very deep, you know, his sense of depth, of, I call it depth of sensitivity to creativity. That's why he excelled beyond anyone else, you know, the way he can dance and the way he can sing, the sensitivities and his vibrato and his feeling expression, even when he was five years old, six years old, like he was saying when he was in later years, you know, he's amazing. He's a gift from God. He was different and special. And how lucky you were to have the best seat in the house watching him on stage. Yeah, the best seat. <laughs> it was it was remarkable to see that and get inspired by his dance moves. Was inspired me to create certain accents. That was his foley to his dance move, his choreography. You know, mm. like in the movie, you have the foley sound to to the action on the screen. I was, I was his foley man back there, as well as his rhythm keeper, which made him want to dance too. He said, when foot plays, and this is it, he said, when foot plays, uh, the music director, uh, Michael Bearden said, when foot plays, it makes me feel like dancing. That's what Michael told him. 
Mm. Uh, and I try to to do that, motivate him, you know, by my power, my sensitivities, my drive, you know. I'm playing the patterns that's there, but I add a bit of me, you know, and the colors and, you know, I don't change the fills that much, but occasionally I rearrange them to make a certain expression. And he'll look back and he'll smile, you know. And then I know I am. You and I were a chemistry set. Mm. We were a chemistry set. And I also called him my dance partner. So when I lost him, I lost my dance partner. Mm. You know, so, but um, I'm still dancing now with him, you know, uh, with this music, um, Afterlife. I play my music to his show I'm putting together for him. And um, to, to pay tribute to him and to keep him alive and, and uh, the Michael Jackson experience I'm putting together. And Michael Jackson and icons, because I'm going to do some other people, Elton John, Madonna, Janet, which is a mixture, but mostly, of course, Michael, of my show that I'm putting together and I'll be invoked. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. And uh, before the camera was on, you told us about how you first got mixed up with Nam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure of the year, but I think it had to be 1980 or 81. Probably 80 was my first time. Um, at the NAMM show uh, through some very good friends of mine, John McLean, who is actually um, one half of Michael's estate, you know, because he grew up with Michael and the brothers in school and stuff. And, you know, that's ironic, right? So now he's uh, executor of Michael's estate along with John Branker, who I'm friends with both of them. You know, they're really, really, really wonderful people and taking really good care of the estate, I believe, and I'm behind them. But, um, John McLean, I used to be at his house every day, and he introduced me to, not introduced me, but uh, he was closer friends with Randy Jackson, Michael's brother, um, little brother, but they used to write together and hang out together, and I'd never hung out with Randy. That's why I say introduced, but he got, he got me and Randy closer, because he said, you and Randy should do something together, we should do something together. And then Randy's the one also said, you should go to the NAMM show, but you know, you can get some, some, some deals on some drums in there, you ought to see all the drums they have, and stuff, and I said, really, what's that? And then he said, you need to go. And then John further told me how to get in and get everything together. And then I wound up uh, going to NAMP, beginning to go NAMP shows. It was 80 or 81. 81 was Triumph Tour. Um, and I think that was when it, when it was happening. And um, when I walked in at the first day and the first time, it scrambled my eggs. My I, The brain is the eggs. I it scrambled my eggs and it popped my yolk. My yolk is brain. Uh, I, I couldn't understand what I was seeing, the magnitude of everything I was seeing. It was so overwhelming. But, but uh, pleasurably so. And I didn't know which way to look. I didn't know what to say. I was just bombarded with all the musicians' eye candy. Oh my God. You know, and so I, I walked around there just uh, in the days, um, appreciated it, and seeing all my fans, the, the, not the fans, you know, my heroes, mm. artists that walk around there, just like walking around. That's what they do. And they did what the bodyguards. You know, I thought they don't come to things like this. So that was great too. that. The NAMM show is more than just the equipment, it's the camaraderie that happens. You know, once a year, all the artists and musicians get to come together and meet up and say hi and see each other again and tell stories about what happened with each other during the course of the year that we hadn't seen each other and uh, and make connections and just plan to work together in different combinations. And it's it's a social event, you know, it's, it's an it's industry uh, equipment event. But more than that, I think as, as importantly, is a social event that uh, everybody get to be one band and one under one roof. And that's beautiful because everybody's jamming around and switching up and stuff. We become one loud band because <laughs> it gets loud over there, <laughs> you know, but it's fun loud. So 
I love I love it because you know I say like I mentioned we all individually our spirituality of music and creativity from our souls and there's something in us you know we almost like aliens you know <laughs> we do something different than most people on earth, on earth is capable of uh, feeling translating and, and learning to do and um, it's magic it's we as a magic in the world make people forget their problems and their troubles and stuff by escaping to music man I. <laughs> Love hearing those stories about Michael Jackson. He, uh, it's such a great story, and I can picture it exactly. And it just seems like uh, they had a really special relationship and uh, a great relationship on tour, and just able to have a lot of fun. So that was that was quite the treat to hear those stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know one of the the um, characteristics of of Jonathan that's obviously coming across in spades here is his warm personality. And when you combine that with talent at his level, it sort of makes it easy to listen to even the, you know, details. If you're not a musician or a drummer, uh, it's still fascinating. It's just absolutely enthralling. In fact, Mike just said a few minutes ago that, uh, um, this is among the, his most favorite interviews that we've done, and I agree with him. I think this is just so captivating. I'm so glad we have this podcast to share in depth a little bit more than what we can on our web clips that are online, because this really paints a much bigger story and, and gives us that room to go a little bit deeper. So I'm really, really pleased about that. So uh, another thing that uh, endeared me personally to Jonathan is uh, one year, the, uh, the NAM Tribute, which is a program we hold each year in January at our show in Anaheim uh, to pay tribute to those who have passed away. Jonathan and Leo Nocentelli and a few other folks, uh, I think um, Bill Dickens was uh, among those that got on stage and played the music as the slideshow of names and images and right afterwards, I went up to sh shake the hands and thank everybody for, there was a huge, I, I just named three of them, but I think there was like seven or eight people on stage and went to shake everybody's hand. And um, I shook uh, Jonathan's hand and he held on a little longer and said, no, I want to thank you. Thank you for letting us do this. And, you know, that's, that tells you the, the, the type of guy he is to me. Uh, just very sincere, um, down to earth, and yet he doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, my gosh, he was on live aid, you guys. <laughs> I mean, come on. So absolutely phenomenal personality along with that talent. So let's hear some more. He's going to talk a little bit about playing the NAM tribute and his friend Leo Nocentelli, along with some other of his friends, like our good guy uh, John Good over at DW. So here is our continued interview with Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffitt. Well, we met at a NAM show when you were so generous to play for our annual tribute to remember those who passed away that year. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder what your memory is of that special yeah. event. That was a great experience with, with Leo Nocentelli, one of my biggest fans. My first hero drummer was Zigaboo from Leo's band, The Meters. They were the greatest band on earth for me, and they still are. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, of course, the Meters are from New Orleans, so... I used to play my band at clubs and finish up and race over to where they were playing at this club called a nightcap. They were so popular. The people were flooding out the clubs, 
blocking the traffic in the street all the way to this side of the street, the other side of the street, across the neutral ground. People can't pass in their cars because the meters were there. And you could hear them jamming outside. And it almost didn't matter if you didn't get in the club because they were so loud and so incredible. People were just dancing out there. And Zigaboo was my first hero. He's the most incredible, most unique drummer ever that's ever played drums. And I'm a big fan of his. I learned all of his stuff, all of his patterns and style and, and touch and feel. They, they began calling me, other than Sugar, but they began calling me Little Zig in New Orleans. Little Zig, because I copied him, you know, it's just like cloned him because he impressed me and moved me that deeply. I wanted to be him. I wanted to be like him. So um, Leo, equally so, because my brother was a guitarist, blew our minds as a guitarist, prolific, pro prolific guitarist, and still is to this day. He's just phenomenal uh, with a unique touch, feel, and stroke. There's a certain stroke a guitarist has that identifies them amongst all the guitars, and Leo has that. Um, so it was great for him to invite me to do this event with him for the NAM. Great experience to play with one of my homeboys, and and uh, we've always admired each other greatly. So and great respect for each other. Um, although he's the kingpin, and I, I remember <laughs> over, over me, I remind him over me. Yeah, I'm just coming. I'm up, come up, and you know. Uh, but so he's like really, really on on the throne of music musicality. Uh, I was honored that he asked me to play with him at that event, and a lot of people in the in that hallway. So mm. it was great to play that and play some Amita's uh, music and, and enjoy it. I was thankful to be part of that and be part of the NAM experience. And you developed a lot of friendships. I know you have tight friends over at Yamaha and yeah. DW and and, and yeah. Zildjian and others. Tell me a little bit about that part of your career. Well, yeah, I got my first endorsement, and, and of course, an endorsement becomes friendship and in business. So I was slinging drums, and, and, and then I was with them for a while, and then um, the Victory Tour happened. It just so happens that Yamaha sponsored the entire big Victory Tour. So one of the requirements is you have to use Yamaha stuff. So uh, I had to leave Slingerland to go to Yamaha because they had everything on stage was Yamaha. Mm. So which wasn't a bad thing. It was a great thing because I love the drums. I still have kits and and my my main recording kit for all the records I've done was a Yamaha kit. You know that played on all the albums, uh, that big albums that I did. Other than the Don't Stop the Music, you know. So um, anyway, I loved that experience with them. And then uh, on the Victory Tour, when I joined Yamaha as an artist, I also took on a new drum tech named John Good. And, um, and he told me about his little company that he's developing was DW with Don Lombardi, a close friend of his. So that was when we first joined as him being my tech in, in 1984. Mm. And then, of course, he's prolific at tuning drums. There's none better. Um, so he became my guy, and then, then I took him with me on Madonna's tour, Virgin tour in 85. We developed a relationship you know, of working together. I want, wherever I was and playing drums, I wanted him with me. So he was with me on a Virgin tour, then he went with me in 86. Um, he didn't do cameos, but he did Jermaine Jackson with me. And then um, that's when I got to, to work with my, back with Madonna. He did, oh, so by the way, he did the Virgin tour in 85 with me after the Victory Tour, Virgin Tour, Jermaine's Tour, then back with Madonna on Who's That Girl Tour. Uh -huh. And then it came up with the first tour with Elton in, in, um, in 88. And um, he decided to put more time to the company because they were trying to grow. And, um, and so Don said, you got to come with the company, do more, put more time in instead of being on the road. And he told me he had to make that hard decision because he loved the road and uh, traveling and seeing the world and stuff and love work with me. So he made the right decision because he got the company, him and Don came together.
pulled the company together and it started growing. And then it was 89 on my second tour with Elton. He approached me and then said, um, you know, it's time. We got our drums together now. You know, they bought uh, Camcord drums and developed it with the new ideas and stuff to it. He says, we've developed now and it's time for you to come join us. And, and I wasn't sure at first. And then um, I said, let me buy a kit. Because I had coming up was a Blind Ambition tour, a big tour for me. And I bought a kit. I lived with it for like six months. I love my Yamaha drums, but then if you're going to go to a different company, every company has a, a distinct, distinctive uh, and significant sound difference uh, of the, and tone difference to the drums. So I lived with them about six months, and I, I started getting that personal relationship with the spiritually with them. Mm. And I called down and said, okay, let's do this. Let's, I want to join. So in 89, I joined DW. Oh. And um, I've been with them since then, 40 years. I just... Celebrated at the 40th anniversary with them uh, two weeks ago for a gathering they had at the factory. And all the guys that signed before 90 were included. Jim Kelton, all kind of guys, you know, um, yeah, Tristan Bowden. Just, just a great number of guys, you know, mm. um, uh, top guys. And they invited me and let me be part of that. So they filmed it and I think they're going to do something with it. And yeah, so um, big event. And... Um, you know, and I have the drums. So I have a lot of drums, as you can see. I got this drum. I don't endorse Mapex, but I switch out uh, off stage different drums and just play something different, different sound and stuff like that. And I have my mini DW kits. I got my other big, big giant DW kits. They're resting in storage, and and uh, they're my treasures. And then I have Tamara, I have Yamaha, of course, and mm. I got a Ludwig kit. And so I, I got different sounds, and I do my practice sessions and just getting. Uh, uh, different voices because every kit has a voice and I have my five bass drum kit I call the Hydra and then I have uh, the three bass drum kit I call triple threat you know mm. yeah so and I play mel melodies and, and songs everybody say you sound like playing a song on just the drums you know because I grew up in the mu uh, musical era of the 60s 70s and 80s and and um, there's a period where uh, you know it was about the song for me about melodies and songs the lyrics Speaking of that, did I see you on the songwriting credit on Coming to America? Yeah, yes, I have a song on there I wrote. And actually, John McClain, once again, my buddy, you know, um, he joined A&M Records, and he's the one who broke Janet big. Yeah, Janet did, did just dropped Janet. And we used to sit in his living room, because he grew up with the family, Jackson family. And we used to talk about the brothers and, the, and what they need to do and this and that. They get bigger. And they were talking about Janet, you know. And um, he had a, a good friend that was an executive at the record company. And um, and uh, he also had connection to Solar Records, but he he had a connection for A and M to Gerald Busby, and um, and then he got to offer the job there. But before then, he used to sit there and say, "Janet needs to do this. Janet needs to do that. If I had Janet, I'm going to do this. And if I had Janet, I'll make her do this. I'll do this. I'll change her character, her style. I'll get her more out there because they had a bubble bubblegum back then, and I, she needs to be out there. She's talented. And I'm trying to say this because it was prophetic." For two years before he got that job at A&M, we used to talk about what he would do. Everything that happened in Janet's career that got before the Control album and the Rhythm Nation, well, he said it in the sofa, on the sofa in his house. Mm -hmm. This is what I would do. So he wound up getting a job at A&M Records. A&M had just dropped Janet. He re-signed her immediately as he got the job. Assigned Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis to her. And the rest is history. And he said, all the things he said directing her uh, image and character and all that stuff, I watched it play out. Mm. I had the screenplay from two years before. He even got hold of her. And then um, 
he made our big star on the Control album. And um, to, to, to the joint efforts with Jimmy Jam Terry, the prolific Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis, mm. you know, you can't lose with them. And then he did the Rhythm Nation album with her. Um, so um, now I've been around some really, really gifted and talented people. And um, it's been a wonderful ride, wonderful experience. Very cool. That's really neat. Yeah. And hey, but I was going to say, John gave me the time in A&M Studio to just develop my songwriting and production skills. So he gave me a Studio D, I think it is, a smaller one, and I went in there and did like four song demos. One of them happened to be the song that's on that movie that I did it just as a demo. John said, you're really good. You know, you, you, your talents are really just songwriting and your production. And he tried to give me a, a deal with A&M's uh, Elmer Irwin um, Publishing. Didn't work out. Uh, but my good friend, uh, Charles Freeman, was a good friend. He used to always be in the studio with me. He remembered that song, and he got a job with Maurice White at Columbia Productions. And Maurice was on tour over in Europe with Earth, Wind & Fire. And the Paramount called him for the, get a song for the film. And he couldn't do it because he was unavailable. And Charles remembered my song. And he said, I know John Sugarfoot has a song. And I knew Maurice, you know, of all of them. So Maurice said, they sent the messenger to my house to pick up my cassette. Charles called me. Picked up the cassette. Hour later, I get this call. They said, Maurice loved the song. They sent it to me. He loves the song. And they say they're sending it to the producer of the film now. And an hour after that, I get a call and said, you got a song in a major motion picture film. So in two hours, I got my first song in a major motion picture film. Now, Maurice got so busy, he couldn't, he was supposed to co-producer with me, but he got so busy, he couldn't. So I want to be in the sole producer. I wrote the song myself and all by myself. And I produced it myself. But it went through Kalimba Productions, a great association for me through Kalimba, Maurice's company, which is very, very well known and respected. And it wound up being on the film. And it's great to sit in the theater and watching the movie. And at the end of the credits, you see your name, Jonathan Philip Moffat. It's right in my. You remember it's, it's what great. scene it's in? You, hmm? you remember what scene of the movie it's in? It's in the scene at the bar. Of course I do. I'm <laughs> like that. What you going to ask well, that I know too. For? I just want to hear you tell me. Uh, are you serious? <laughs> of course I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's in the scene in the bar when him and Arsenio, Eddie uh, Murphy and Arsenio are auditioning women and stuff and they do it and they got the, all these creepy little women that come on and they have to be looking at these other crazy and no not that and and my music and the solo section of my song is playing in the background and then after the solo section is chucky booker's playing keyboards and and on it and um and the solo and then the chorus comes in all dressed up ready to hit the town comes in so it's a wonderful feeling to sit in the theater and hear your first song and such a motion picture uh, film and it is still one of the funniest and top comedy films I'm told in the history of uh, comedy movies in, in, in the industry and it's still playing everywhere today and I really really am lucky, lucky to have that that opportunity and I'm look, looking forward to making more like that I want to get more writing producing I'll never stop playing drums it's who I am not what I do um, but I, I love writing songs and you'll be hearing some of my stuff soon I'm trying to get my, my music out there now and uh, express my soul as an artist to the world. Beautiful. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and you guys are doing a wonderful job. My highlight of my career 
is gauged by them because that's my highlight when them comes up we're like little kids and we go into the toy store we go to toys r us and we cannot wait for you to open them doors and get there for those days of that show and uh every year has been a great experience positive experience and overwhelming experience and um i love all the fans that's there that greet me say hi and, and appreciate my work and i love all the people that support me i'm always there to support the companies that's why i'm there um and to spend time at the companies that support me um really grateful for them because they helped me to be who i am and express my soul and spirit in the light of the sound that i want to do and i like the inspiration of all the other creative extra aspects aspects of instrumentation and recording and sound and guitars i love designs of guitars and basses and designs of drums so I am the kid in the candy store, and Nam is the candy store, not Toys R Us for musicians. <laughs> well said. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, that was a fantastic interview, and uh, enjoyed it so much. And uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. And you will hear from us in about two weeks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.